once a woman is in the middle of labor, you're kind of busy. So it's a hard time to be the advocate because you're on the wrong side of the stirrups. You're there trusting the system to do the right thing, which is a terribly vulnerable place because you've got to trust the system. Hello, I'm Carolyn, and this is What Doulas Know. I'm a doula, the mother of two, and for over 40 years, a registered nurse. My goal is to educate, support, and empower before, during, and after pregnancy with a special emphasis on labor and childbirth. All information presented in this podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not intended as medical diagnosis or treatment. The persons presenting the episodes are not licensed doctors. You should consult a qualified medical professional before making any decisions regarding your health, including any decisions based on information presented here. Hello, it's Carolyn with an episode on the impact of birthing practices on breastfeeding, which happens to be the name of one of Linda Smith's books that uh, is our guest today, Linda Smith. She is a breastfeeding and um, lactation consultant, a childbirth educator, author, and um, liaison to the World Health Organization, baby-friendly initiative, and a delegate to the United States Breastfeeding Committee. Uh, she's been working with women and children and families for over 50 years. She's attended a lot of births, and I'm really excited to have Linda here today. I first met her at a Birth with Spirit doula training, and I really understand why she's so successful on her journey. Uh, she's approachable, uh, caring. Uh, the knowledge she has is amazing and inspiring. And I think the best part is she's willing to share it with anyone. So um, I will have a link to her website on the uh, whatdoulasknow.com website. So there will be some references and a lot of information there for us to go to. So what we're going to do today is um, we're just going to start out with the historical perspectives of childbirth and breastfeeding. So Linda, we, we talked a little bit uh, before we started recording about our birth stories and how we really didn't have choices and stuff. So what the heck happened? Way in the past, women were kind of railroaded into birth. Well, way, way, way back, birth happened at home with midwives. Around the late 1800s, birth pretty much moved into hospitals and the births were attended by physicians rather than midwives who came to the women's home. And that was the big change. Some births need technology or else the mother and baby will die. And the trend was to use more and more technology rather than letting labor unfold as its course. The sad part for me is that women bought into this. We want it easier. Labor is called labor. It's not called falling out of baby. Mm -hmm. So it's hard work. It's a unique experience in a woman's life. There's nothing like it in the male experience at all. And... Of course, we want it easier, but everything that makes it easier has a consequence, and the toughness of it is actually a good thing because it prepares a mother for what life with a new baby is like, which nobody can prepare for anyway. Right. So the consequences, we went from home birth or birth at, at your grandma's house to institution, and now we're kind of going back to the home birth, but there seems to be a lot of controversy if you say, I want a home birth your doctor immediately gets a blank look on his face and, and you're kind of, mm, that's probably not going to work. Well, that's in this country, in yes. the U.S. Um, other countries, 
30% or more births are at home, attended by midwives, and it's, it's part of the culture. In this country, and in particularly in the state of Ohio, it's frowned upon, um, hard to get, has its own challenges because the docs don't always want to back up the midwives for whatever their reasons. There's a financial incentive there, um, how insurance reimburses. So there's a lot of factors playing in. Everybody wants the mother and baby to come out alive. That's a given for everybody. How to get there is controversial. So what has happened over the course of, of many years is that it was medicine by authority. The oldest person in the room, usually a guy, said, this is what I think is the best thing to do, and everybody jumped on board. So the person with the most authority, the most experience, got to say how things happened. In the mid-'70s, around the time that I was having children, the whole idea of evidence-based medicine or evidence-based practice Mm -hmm. took off. Um, Now there's many, many places in the world that study what works, what's effective, what's not only ineffective, but what's harmful. The bad news is that practices that crept into, quote, routine birth have been shown to be harmful. And for those to stop being done takes a change of not only knowledge, but attitude and practice. And once you've done something a certain way for 10, 20, 30 years, it's hard to change that. So give me an example of what evolved into um, something that's really not the best thing anymore. Routine episiotomy. Episiotomy is a decision in the woman's perineum, which is the opening between the vagina going downward, to make more room for the baby to come out. Well, sometimes that's needed for forceps or for an instrument to go in there or to turn the baby. It was been done routinely, both straight down and to the side, which, first of all, hurts. Secondly, doesn't heal as well. And thirdly, extended the cut even deeper. In a lot of places, that was done so routinely that women had to say, wait a minute, is that really needed to be done? And now the trend is, well, wait a minute, do we really need it? So a whole generation of doctors are needing to be re-educated. Don't reach for the scissors unless there's a real clear indication for that. So is that one of the examples of um, lack of informed consent is a lot of the doctors just did it routinely? I know my doctor did when I had my child. Yeah, absolutely. The trend now in the – we're 2019 – is that some women have said don't do that. Doctors have done it anyway and have been sued successfully for obstetric violence when it was done not only unnecessarily but against the women's informed consent. Okay. Once a woman is in the middle of labor, you're kind of busy. So it's a hard time to be the advocate because you're on the wrong side of the stirrups. You're there trusting the system to do the right thing, which is a terribly vulnerable place because you've got to trust the system. So that brings me to another point um, that you feel very strongly about is having a companion or a caregiver in the room for the mother. Yeah. The the companion, the research shows that even a stranger in a corner of the room behind a curtain improved outcomes for both the mother by reducing her fear, even if she didn't know who it was, there was a witness, 
and improved outcomes for the baby and helped advocate for the mother. So I've been the, the paid companion for a number of women. In my role as a childbirth educator, we were expected to be the doula or the companion for a certain number of our clients per year. I was the grandmother when my daughter, I mean, the, the birthing grandmother, I was the, mm-hmm. my daughter's doula when she was in labor. Mm-hmm. So it can be a family member. Um, the research shows that it's, a little better when the doula or companion has had a little training, mad days, two days worth. Better if they've already had a baby themselves. Better if they're female. Better if, if payment is involved, which it isn't always. It's from the parent, not from the facility. That doesn't mean that labor nurses shouldn't be trained in all these techniques. I've certainly done a lot of training of labor and birth nurses. The dad is a wonderful companion, although dads can be scared because they've never been through this themselves. There's nothing in the male experience that is like birth. They can be trained. An experienced dad is a terrific companion. So any companion is better than none. Mm-hmm. 14 companions is a bad idea. <laughs> We're talking one. One. Maybe yeah. two. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I think that the companion, like you said, can be anybody, but it's not somebody that is going to take the role away of the doctor or the midwife or the father. It is somebody there just for the mother. Just for the mother. And the most important part is continuous presence. They, The companion only leaves long enough to use the restroom or grab a bite to eat. They don't interfere with medical care, nor do they provide medical care. So as a childbirth educator, I knew what was coming. And when I've been a doula, I've been as supportive for the dad, who's scared, doesn't know what's happening, as to the mother. But the mother comes first. Mm-hmm. Okay. And even if the birth isn't going the way that everybody expected, I'm still there for the mother. I'm still there holding her hand, brushing her hair, rubbing her back, rubbing her feet, getting her a drink of water, whatever she needs, unless that would interfere with her medical care. Okay, so when we talk about this, there is a document called the um, Mother-Baby-Friendly Hospital Initiative. Is that correct? Yes, but that was an initiative that started in the 90s, late 90s, and was in quite popular for a while. I, got, I was very involved in that. Mm-hmm. It has kind of faded away um, because the World Health Organization took a lot of the recommendations from the Mother-Friendly Childbirth Initiative and put it into a new document on appropriate care to help birth be normal. And I forget the exact title of it. Okay. It's a pretty good document. Because one of the bullet points for that is it says, encouraging women to have companions of their choice yeah. to provide continuous physical and or emotional support during labor if desired. Right. So that is a, a guideline. It's actually probably the most important part of what the World Health Organization took from the birth world and put into the baby-friendly initiative as a trial in 2006 and then as part of the initiative in 2009. Now, here we are 10 years later. But in 2009, they put in five practices that were designed to help mothers with breastfeeding. One was the companion. Two was move about freely unless you need to do something to correct a complication. Three is to eat and drink freely, again, unless there's a medical reason to not. Four is to avoid routine procedures unless for the complication and to use both non-drug pain relief methods before, in addition to, or instead of chemical pain relief as much as possible. 
those were a part of the baby friendly initiative until the new revisions came out. And now I'm not sure where they live. Um, a lot of them are in the new WHO initiative for labor. Okay. And you've been involved with the WHO as well. Oh, yeah. Still am. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, Linda, we're going to close now. And I, I sure appreciate you being here. And we're going to have a series with Linda on a lot of different things. So this isn't the only time you're going to get to hear her knowledge and uh, experience. So um, please join us again. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of What Doulas Know. You can learn more about the show and my guests at whatdoulasknow.com. Please rate and review this show. It helps get more exposure and reach additional people. Peace to all. Thanks. Thanks.